Welcome to Call Your Hits, a Storm Riders Airsoft podcast. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Today, we're talking with Eric from the Gun Gamers YouTube channel and Gun Gamers Productions. Um, Eric and his team are a group from the Northeast United States, and they are a fount of information, airsoft experience, ranging from, you know, gears o- gear overviews, MILSIM AARs, and sort of basically everything in between. Um, and recently, they've gone from just playing and organizing sort of local games to organizing national level events. And Organizing events for my money is one of the best ways to help engage and sort of invigorate your community, uh, especially if you've got a smaller local community, you know, strategizing on objectives, role-playing even, engaging on milsims, whatever it is, all that can be super fun, but it also takes someone to, you know, organize that. And that person can be you, right? That's the thing. And we've talked about that over the course of this year, uh, we're going to get back into organizing events and we'll be sharing tips with you about how you can get into planning your own events, how it's not some big, scary thing. And that's why I'm so thrilled to have Eric here with us today to talk about running Airsoft events, how he got into it, and uh, how as well we can apply some of the same concepts and, you know, how they say, you know, uh, you can steal ideas from people and start running our events uh, here in Newfoundland 2023. So Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, I'm glad to be here. This is this is gonna be a really fun conversation. I'm I'm with you on like just airsoft is not a hobby that happens by itself. You know, you have to you have to have games to go play, right? <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Well, listen, uh, and so as we get right into it, you know, uh, uh, when we were leading up to the uh, to the podcast, we were talking about how and you know, you've been playing for like 16, 17, 18 years if you include all the backyard stuff. What yeah. was the first event that you really sort of at any level, right, that you organize, you're like, you know, I'm going to run a game. And what made you decide to actually take that challenge on for yourself? So it, it's funny because I basically have been to one level or another organizing games for as long as I've been playing Airsoft. Like even before I was going to real fields, I just had a group of friends in high school and one of them lived on a large piece of property just outside of town. So we had a large piece of private wooded property that we would go play at. And I immediately got interested in like, oh, well, we should do these game modes that I see on like YouTube videos, or or we should try out like (laughs) stuff like this. And I I would like play as the hostage if we needed a hostage game. So it was uh, honestly like at that level, that was really where I started. But then uh, in terms of like actually organizing and running a game at a field, that came down to, uh, I was, working with Kyle, who's now my business partner with Gun Gamers Productions, member of the Gun Gamers team, super, super good person. Uh, But I had been staffing his games at Hunter's Creek Airsoft, old Western New York Hansel, remember that place. Uh, And then uh, in 2013, I think it was, was when I actually really decided I wanted to take on the challenge of organizing my own larger scale game. And I ran a game called Operation Minutemen at... Hunter's Creek in like May or June of 2013. And that had, I think about 80 players. And that was, that was the first time I like really did the whole design doc, you know, laid everything out and built the whole game. And that, that was so cool to get to do that. And especially I had a, you know, the privilege of 
a lot of friends who were also staffing Hunter's Creek games. And then I had the privilege of Kyle, who was, you know, my mentor at that point. So mm-hmm. it was, it was ultimately just a perfect storm of, I want to do this. I'm interested in doing this. I have an idea for a game that I want to run and I have the people around me who can help make it happen. So then it was just, it was almost a no brainer. Yeah. And how many people, so you say like large scale event, like how many people were you talking about at your, your very first uh, event that you ran back in 2013? Uh, that was about 80 players. Uh, so we, not bad. yeah, it was good. Uh, Hunter's Creek back in the day, like it was a pretty good, com- good size community. Uh, it used to be even bigger. Uh, there was a whole bunch of local drama in like 2008, but there used to be like 200 person games on this just 30 acre piece of property in the middle of nowhere, Western New York. It was sick. Yeah, that's awesome. And so how many years did you did you do those those types of like more like larger scale, but like local events um, and before deciding to sort of try and take it at, a, at the national level, so to speak? Uh, so I ran games like that at Hunter's Creek and at another field uh, called River City Airsoft in uh, in Hamlin, New York. Uh, they're still active uh, and they're they're you know still probably one of the more popular fields in Western New York. And but I ran games pretty consistently from 2013 on, I mean all the way up to last year. Uh, I was I was doing games at that local scale. Uh, really, I only started scaling up and doing bigger, crazier, more ambitious things because then it got to a point where we realized we could do it. Yeah. And so what was the, I guess, you know, the, the what clicked in your thinking, I guess, that made you feel that you were ready to sort of take the plunge into something like much bigger? Like, how did you like, you know, that's the question. Like, how did you yeah. know you were ready? Right. So. Oh God, this this is gonna sound like disparaging, uh, but I but I don't I don't want it to come off that way. But to be honest, it came from attending a few games that we had gone to that were on that like big level that had a lot of players that were mm-hmm. at rented facilities and that cost more money to attend. And we went to a couple of games like that that we didn't think were very good, and uh, and it ultimately came down to the fact that we're like. Well, you know, we feel like we know what some of these games are missing, or at least for the experience we're looking for, right? Because that's the other thing, too, is like everybody's got different things they want out of Airsoft. Uh, So we felt like at that point, we're like, okay, well, we have ideas that we think we can implement and we have enough capital because ultimately there's also an investment in starting an LLC, investing in the initial prop runs, uh, making sure that you have enough also like I, I don't want to sound gross, but it is kind of brand capital of will people come if we host a game that they have to travel for? Yep, absolutely. Uh, and I think once we realized we had those pieces in place, we're like, well, the worst case scenario is we each lose a, we each lose a few grand, but best case scenario is it works out well and it's fun and it's cool and we can keep doing it. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's a, it's a fair point. Like I think, especially as, you know, you're starting to to organize events like I'm uh, you know like the games that you were organizing initially you probably didn't have that same sort of investment that was required yeah yeah exactly you know we we would run games where we would go to a field owner like we were talking about actually right before uh before we started but we would run games where we would go to a field owner and we would just be like hey we want to run this game you know you can take like the majority of the cut per head and basically just give us like 
five or 10 bucks a head to cover props, or we would just run it for no cut. Like I actually staffed all my Hunter's Creek games uh, just totally for free because Kyle was my friend and all he used the money for was to pay the taxes on the property. So, <laughs> yeah. so yeah, so we uh, so we would do stuff like that uh, for a long time. And, uh, and that was how we really got our feet wet. And that was that was the starting point, I think, that a lot of players can relate to. And that's the easiest way to get into it if people are like talking about getting into it. Yeah. And I mean, you said something interesting just before we got back on, on this, but you said, you know, you're you're wanting to run the kind of game that you want to play at, right? Yep. Like you're everyone wants something different for Airsoft. When you're thinking just initially about like, I want to run a game, you're probably wanting to run the kind of game that you're like, you that you would want to play. I know that's the case for me. That's how I got into running games too. And when you're doing that, you can, I, I, and I guess this was your process, creating all of this game um, and the, the event and like the missions or whatever else. And then just yeah. going to a field owner with this sort of turnkey solution, right? Being like, here's what we want to do. Yeah. And also, you know, when you get games that are different like that from a normal weekend play at a field, the field owner gets excited, too, because their thought is, hey, this is going to draw people who maybe are a little burned out on the normal weekend open plays. This is going to draw people who want to try something a little different. And it's going to grow the uh, the investment of the community with people who don't just want to do, you know, the same team deathmatch capture the flag and that stuff all the time. Yeah, because yeah, because. You know, and while those while those open play games can remain as almost design set pieces as you put your own larger, more complex games together, it's always about the not just the presentation of it in terms of, you know, because players do like the LARP, you know, the Milsim, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but it's also about how you can remix those elements. And when you get those remixed elements like that, field owners get excited. So they're like, well, hey, maybe this will give me ideas for my games. Yeah, and it's funny how sometimes a, a little prop goes a long way too at uh, yep. creating that remix. Like you're playing basically the same game, but now you've thrown in some sort of prop, which is basically like, I don't know in your case, but like for us, like there's a crate. It's just a wooden crate, but that's an EMP and that's dynamite yep. and that's whatever else. And everyone's like, oh my God, right? Like it just completely changes. So yeah, I totally feel you. And I, I think my next question for you really relates to that. Like we've talked about like approaching field owners and yeah. being like, hey, uh, this is our turnkey solution really for a game that we want to run but i know that right now uh you you've got a, an event that you're playing i think later on this uh this year if i'm not mistaken that's at a, an actual like range that is, yeah. has never hosted airsoft games before and i thought that was interesting because i think many people who listen might live in an area where they don't have access to like an airsoft specific field they may have a paintball field or or what have you or they might have just areas that there's an owner that they could approach. How did you how did you go about that? Like, what was your process like for that in particular? So it, we will say uh, it was easier with uh, you're referring to Ascension at Ben Franklin Range, July yeah. 29th. Get your tickets. Uh, <laughs> obligatory. <laughs> yeah, plug, plug right? it, plug it. <laughs> but uh, but the the process for that was pretty easy because you know I don't I don't want to get in the weeds on like someone else's problems with this facility, but. There had been another game that was scheduled there, so the owners were already amenable to Airsoft, and we actually had the in uh, because Amped Airsoft, our retail partner, knew these guys. Like, they were friends with these guys, and they called Amped and said, hey, we've got this piece of property we're developing. Uh, they took it over. It used to be like uh, an ATV off-road park, and they still host 
off-road events, but they called Amped and said, we want to host Airsoft games here. And, you know, that can help drum up some business for our property rental. It can get people here. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was something that was, it, that made it very easy for us. Uh, I can tell you as well, like from talking to uh, Josh at Milson West, who's also a good friend of ours, but he uh, he approaches a lot of venues uh, by using his body of work as a previous like credential. So then you can say, hey, I've hosted all these places. I've done this stuff. I can be this level of professional. And, you know, Milson West gets to cheat, right? Because they've like been on Vice and in the New York Times and stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. But but that that is a, a cogent point, though, where then you build that credibility. So if you can build a credibility and like, uh, for example, we're hosting at Action Sports in Wisconsin as well, who are not a facility new to Airsoft, but we actually got like a discount on our deposit because they said, hey, you're like an organized group that's actually put together and you're not likely to cancel on us at the last minute. So we'll give you a reduced deposit. And it just goes to show that all you can do is continue to build that credibility of what your uh, what your draw, what your professionalism, uh, what your safety record is like, and then it makes it easier to approach newer places that maybe haven't done airsoft. But then you can explain, hey, we've done games safely at all these places. We do these processes for insurance and for accountability. You know, we track players through you know the chain of command, so we know that they're not like wandering off of your property and bugging your neighbors, uh, stuff, stuff like that. It, it really just does come down to finding an in, uh, presenting your professionalism and credibility that you've built up, and then using that so that you can build a relationship with venues and uh, just hopefully continue forward from there. Yeah. Well, actually, you raise an, an, an awesome point, which I think a lot of players don't necessarily think about, especially uh, if you haven't been either like a business owner or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And that's the safety issue, right? Like it's, oh yeah, uh, you know, you want to create, you know, you want to create a good experience. We talk about that in in a little bit. And so people are like, oh, we could do pyro. We can do this. We can do that. The the other thing, but it's like that creates potential safety hazards um, that can be really scary for a business owner if they're not familiar with what, what you're, you're getting on with. So um can you talk a little bit about what that looks like, looked like for you initially? Like, how did you approach that safety angle? Oh my God. It, it's so easy because we did like that whole thing with, um, with skirmish paintball for overture last year. You know, we hosted uh overture at skirmish paintball and skirmish paintball is, you know, they rent out to airsoft events. It is part of their business, but mm-hmm. they're not like super familiar with airsoft. So what we did is we had a list of things we wanted to do that like were a little outside standard airsoft. We had an artillery simulation tool that was, uh, you know, a remote fireworks detonation system that we hooked up some uh, some firecrackers and some smoke grenades to. We had, you know, the tagging grenades that we were allowing that people could use. Uh, we had we had that kind of stuff. And that is outside the realm of like what most people see with airsoft. So the easiest way to do it is. We brought that stuff with us when we toured the facility. We showed it to the uh, manager of the property and said, hey, here's these things. Here's the context they're going to be used in. Our insurance has all of it listed. Like any damage will get paid for uh, if there is a potential for damage. But we also have safety procedures. Uh, We actually had fire extinguishers on every one of our platoon leaders. So you had 200 players on the field and we had six platoons. So you had six platoon leaders and then we had each CO. So there was 
eight fire extinguishers on the field nice. with all of our staff in all places at all times. So mm-hmm. it was like, yes, we're doing this thing that's a little like more spicy than what some people are used to seeing with airsoft. But we also have these mitigating factors of it's listed our insurance. We've got fire extinguishers. We're experienced with using this stuff. Players aren't going to be like messing around with the artillery simulator. That's staff only. So that really made uh, that really made it easier to approach those things because you have to think intelligently about the way to do things safely. You know, everyone wants to do really cool stuff, uh, but even you know we're debuting our vehicle rules, for example, at Ben Franklin Range. And yeah. Ben Franklin Range basically gave us a blank check and said, "Hey, you can land helicopters here. We don't care. <laughs> Just make sure you've got the insurance for it, and make sure that you tell us what you're doing and be safe about it." So we're like, "Okay, well, that's an immense amount of trust." to put into us. So we're not going to take advantage of that. So we actually have like a very comprehensive vehicle rule set. We're going to be publishing that we actually have like staff in every vehicle. Okay. And a helicopter, apparently guys, you heard it here first. <laughs> we, we don't, we don't have a helicopter right now. Uh, if we could get one, we'll be sure to let you know. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I think it's such, such a good point, man. And like, I think when we're when you talk about events, and especially when you're dealing with business owners, one of the key things that airsofters who are looking into getting that really need to to be aware of is think from the point of view of the business owner. Yep. Right? Like what is it that they would want to know about? Because they might not know anything about airsoft at all, right? But the yeah. only thing you scare is they they care about is okay, if someone gets hurt, am I gonna get sued? And what happens if that happens, right? Like, so I think that's a really good point. Now you know, I'm glad to hear. Um, as you know, a former insurance professional, but you know, as, yeah. as it is, like I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that that's part of your process for sure, because it, you know, it helps keep people safe, right? Well, so we don't get to cheat with insurance stuff because yeah. Kyle's day job is also insurance. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that sort of seals that deal, right? Yeah, exactly. Get a business partner who works in insurance. Boom. Yeah. No problem. There you go. That's that's your your first pro tip from Eric from Gun Gamers is just go into business with somebody whose day job is insurance and you'll definitely know everything you have to do for insurance. <laughs> yeah, no question. <laughs> so, you know, we've talked a little bit about the, the boring adult stuff of like liability yeah. and all this kind of stuff. But I'm curious for you, like, let's talk about how the game design process starts for you so do you how do you approach this like do you come up with like you look at a field and you have a cool idea for you know an engagement or a, a mechanic that you want to try and then build it out from there or do you look at a like a larger storyline how does that work in your mind you, you know it's one of those things where i almost want to say there's no hard and fast rule because inspiration can come from anywhere and to me if you're running a game you should have a key tenet of inspiration somewhere, right? I, I mean, maybe maybe your inspiration is the narrative of the world that you've built or that, you know, the conflict that you're simulating. And then you want to say, okay, well, what aspect of that do I want to incorporate into my game design? Or maybe you have the reverse happen where you see something and you're like, I want to run this mechanic. Mechanically, I'm very interested in playing these things out. And it becomes all about that blending of wherever you start, Work with that, but then also make sure you put all of your pieces together. So for uh, for us, we actually have a standard game design document template that we use because we want to make sure we have all of our ducks in a row, all of our pieces in place, and just know like, hey, here's what we're running. Here's how we're running it. Here's the intention of the game. And that I think is a very important thing to recognize as well is your 
intention. So for us this year, our theme has been to come up with uh, with different challenges that we want to approach from a game design standpoint. Uh, so for us, like attrition, for example, our inspiration for attrition was we really want to run a more organized, long form game in the winter in the snow because nobody does that. Mm-hmm. And then we've got, you know, Incursion, which is the game in action sports. And for yeah. that, our challenge is we want to run a game with heavy buildings and try to make close quarters combat that feels decisive as opposed to a meat grinder by, you know, having that controlled ammo and everything that we do with our format. And then for Ascension, the whole point of that is just how big can we make a game in a single day and, you know, incorporate the vehicle rules and try to make a very challenging terrain-based game with the property that, you know, Ben Franklin Range offers, which is like 1,100 acres. So for us, it's all about identifying the key unique thing that we can do and then trying to approach that challenge in a way that's going to be fun, both both for us to put on because we enjoy game design for its own sake and Mm -hmm. also for players to play. So, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, and I have a couple of follow-on questions mm-hmm. to that. I think the first is, when you're looking at your standardized template without having to divulge any secrets or anything like yeah, that, but yeah, yeah. what are some standard things that you're always looking at when you're approaching game design? Uh, so, for right now, we have the adaptation of our game format into the game that we're running. Because uh, we do use, currently, like, we have the 12-hour format, issued ammo, platoon and squad-based uh not interaction, that's the wrong word, but platoon and squad based organization. Yeah. Uh, that that is the first thing we have to figure out of who's gonna be fighting, where are they gonna be fighting, what are they fighting over, what methods can they use to fight, what's at their disposal, and then you get into the weeds of like a lore and a universe you're building of why they're fighting. And players players get into that with like a culture aspect and building that culture is a, is a really cool thing for a game designer because then you get everyone who's that much more invested and, and it makes the mechanics work that much better when everyone is enjoying the presentation. Yeah. And it's funny. Like I, I think about the discord and some of the guys in the U S going to mill Sims, like uh, there's two teams, I think UFS and cost and like the yeah. cost guys are like, yeah, we're cost. And the UFS guys are like, yeah, we're UFS. Yeah. And so that's a cool dynamic. Like, you take that off. I mean, everybody's friendly, like, don't get me wrong, but like, Oh yeah. That's a cool dynamic to have like outside of the game too. So that's pretty cool. Do you have that sort of dynamic occurring at your events as well? I mean, you know, we're we're one game in until we run attrition in a few weeks. Uh, so for right now, I don't think we have like a super strong dynamic like that yet. But we do have a lot of people who are coming to attrition who went to Overture who are going on the same faction. So it it's one of those things where you've got already people identifying like, hey, I want to fight for this faction. And we're uh, we're working on building up the, the lore behind each faction so people can know a little bit more about it because you know, on top of Airsoft, I'm also like a and d nerd. So I like, I like having that homebrew setting that I can feel nope. is so cool that I built. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to say there's like a bunch of dice on my desk right now. So whatever. I, I totally oh, dude. feel it. Yeah. I feel it. I feel it. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I would I guess- actually, uh, like a weird aside, I would actually say if you're an aspiring Airsoft game designer, look at tabletop game design. Because yeah. there's a lot there that can apply. And if you can get good at understanding the intersectionality of all those systems, that then applies that much better when you go into the real world. Because 
well, you can't really fudge dice rolls when physics works the same way everywhere. So then yeah. you can understand better how to work into those systems and understand like what your game is going to do. It's so funny that you would mention that because, you know, Pat, who's on the podcast and is my best friend since we were, you know, conscious, as I like to say, uh, he's a huge D&D player. We both are. We've played D&D our whole lives, but he's really big into GMing, running games, etc. And so at the event that we're hosting later, yeah. I'm really in charge of organizing the, I'm going to say, hard logistics of it yeah. uh, and coordinating with the field manager and doing all that stuff, uh, marketing, etc., blah, blah, blah. But he's in charge of organizing the storyline, the role-playing elements, like what's going to happen with the NPCs? How do you get, you know, faction with them? And what does that mean? Into? So I, because last time I tried to do both and like trying to run yeah. both of those things simultaneously. It's a lot. It's a lot day, to do. It's too much, right? <laughs> All I remember yeah. at some point during the day is I basically just lost my mind and I put on a sheriff's badge and started like just, anyways, it was wild. <laughs> but, so this time he, I'm compartmentalizing and he's going to handle that. But again, that's, I'm relying on him because I know that his D&D experience can really support uh, designing something that is robust. And also, you know, players never do the thing that you expect them to do oh, as yeah. a DM, right? Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so he can sort of work and like noodle that a little bit and try and get it all squared away. And that's the thing, you know, another important skill, like, you know, what we talk about, you know, planning out the game design and everything, right? But no plan survives contact with airsofters. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 100%. Um, the other question I wanted to ask you, and especially uh, with your event that's coming up, and mm. you know, the core mechanic that you're talking about is like Northeast Winter Airsoft, right? Yeah. Um, as a uh, proud Northeasterner myself, uh, I yeah, think buddy. I can say uh, unequivocally that winters suck, right? It, yeah. It's just not awesome in terms of, well, sorry, it's not awesome if you are not prepared for it. Yes. Right? It's easy to go out there and enjoy winter activities if you are prepared for it. Uh, but if you are not, it's going to suck in a lot of different ways. And so my question for you is when you're planning that kind of game where the mechanic is centered around something that is way beyond the scope of like, oh, well, it's a vehicle mechanic or whatever. It's like legit mother nature will yeah. punish you if you do something stupid. How are you How are you handling that with your players? So... Uh, the way we've handled that is we uh, we actually released a few videos on the Gun Gamers channel like to lead into it, where one was like, hey, here's our guide to layering so you can yeah. put yourself together in a way that, you know, you're, it's not going to be miserable. Uh, we've got our packing guides that are, you know, on our YouTube channel for, you know, Milson West is obviously its own beast, right, where you're actually like sleeping overnight and out in the field constantly. But then you've got uh, then you've got the aspects that carry over of, hey, think ahead of time about preparing for the elements and don't just tell yourself, oh, I'll be fine. I can hack it because uh, that's not reality. You, you know, yeah. everybody thinks that they've got a constitution of 20 until it's hour three at 10 degrees and they only had T-shirts as warming layers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Mother Nature does not care how tough you think you are, right? Yeah. So that that's and that's a good point, I think. Uh, just as a side note, I think creating video content for your players to consume mm -hmm. about the game is super helpful because lots of people oh, learn yeah. that way. Putting a rule set out is one thing, but like, does anybody actually read it? Like, I'm a nerd, I'll read it. But yeah. like, the average airsofter may not. So I think, you know, doing a video is, uh, is definitely a smart play, especially when it comes to, again, like, layering like it's not rocket surgery as we say but <laughs> at the same time you kind of you have to know right otherwise yep. you decide that you're all going to wear cotton that day and it's like um yeah that's not great 
We, we also have uh, another thing that we're doing, like to really approach players with that is we do have emergency backups, right? Like we're requiring every player to bring an emergency space blanket because those yep. fold up and go in your pocket. So you're not like carrying anything out in the field that's going to slow you down. But God forbid, you know, it's hour four at 10 degrees and your T-shirt wasn't keeping you warm enough. Then you can like throw that on and stay warm enough to get back to staging, you know, Zulu 24 is a heated shop. So you can get back to staging, get back to your car, get in the shop, you know, get around a fire or something if you really have to. Uh, and we also have our staff who are going to be monitoring and working with players. We, we still like have our full staff and that puts another set of eyes on everybody to where hopefully nobody just like drops and no one's around. Cause you know, I'm not expecting that. I'm hoping that everyone's going to be at least decently prepared, but you do have to be prepared for the unexpected and, you know, have your emergency contingencies. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. There's a lot of parallels between uh, that and like the world of like ultra trail running and super long endurance races and stuff, which is yep. a world that I'm getting into. But anyways, I digress. But like going to those events, there's a, a safety list of things that you need to bring. Space blanket is one of them. A whistle is another, right? Like that kind of stuff. Yep. For a lot of airsofters, like those are things that, like you said, doesn't take real space or weight in your pack. Um, but it absolutely can make the difference between being mildly uncomfortable as you sort of wander back to an aid station or the the, the heated shop or whatever, and like getting in serious trouble, right? So yeah, uh, you know, it's good to hear that too. And for those people who are listening, I think if you are designing a game that has this sort of like toughness endurance element, that's fine. But you really need to consider like what happens if a player shows up to the game and they've decided to ignore whatever well-intentioned message you put out there. Like, what do you have in place to, to make sure that at least, you know, if you're checking their kit and being like, show me your space blanket, you have it cool. And then you're good. Right. Yeah. And, and that's actually something that, uh, that we borrowed from, you know, the, the Milson West way of doing things is every, like, if you, if you've never been to Milson West, like the check-in process starts, uh, before anyone goes on the field with dump out your ruck, show me you have everything that you need to make it through this game. Because, mm. you know, in their case, you know, e even outside of like 12 hours out in the cold, they're doing 40 hours and who knows what weather conditions because they don't cancel for weather. So, yeah. so they're like, yeah, dump your stuff. Show me you have, you know, extra socks, sleeping gear, food, water. And that's, you know, I think a lot of players feel like stuff like that is unnecessary but the reality is there's enough players out there who make it necessary. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It may not be necessary for you, but it's going to be necessary for someone. I I'd love to see the numbers on how many players get caught on, oh, I didn't have this or I didn't have that every year. Like, it, oh you my know, God. it's got to be not, it's got to be non-negligible, right? Like it's got to be. You know. I was, I was at one game uh, a few years ago where the AO was, over a thousand acres of mountainous woodland terrain and someone's ruck was a rolling duffel bag. Oh yeah. Okay. Needless to say, uh, they borrowed a ruck from somebody else and did not yeah. bring that up the mountain. <laughs> yeah. Like it's so funny what they say about common sense, right? Doesn't yeah. Sense, right? It's not. So coming back to the, coming back to the game itself, I think, yeah, when you're thinking about like the engagements and stuff, one of the questions, and I've seen this happen a fair amount in my time playing and I've seen at different events, you know, 
one of the things I and I'm just a side note, I've also heard it from people going to games, like, well, one side is getting completely crushed. Mm-hmm. And so those players are just like, nah, you know what, I'm done. And then they leave, which of course makes the thing even worse because yeah. they are they're down players. And I, I you know, there's a tendency in some ways to balance the play. Right to be like, oh well, this is no longer fun for those people. So maybe we give this other people artillery, and they can clear out a whole area, and then um, you know that then they can take advantage of it. Or okay, we're going to stop. You know, if you have a linear field, this is something that we've seen at our field before, which was so frustrating. Uh, okay, well we're going to stop, and then we're going to swap sides and do it again, kind of deal. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute, what's happening? Right? Yeah. So, um, how how do you deal with that? Like, what is what is your overall, firstly, your mindset on that? Like, what happens if someone gets totally crushed? And do you have a plan to sort of cope with that? So the, the easiest way that you can, because game balance is a necessary thing, at least in the way that even if engagements aren't 100% fair, they have to be fun. Uh, yeah. and, and that's the, the general rule we go by. Because ultimately... It's impossible to truly do a fully balanced game. You never know what skill set people are coming with. You never know how people's equipment is going to work. Sometimes doing something one way on a field is way easier than doing it the other way. Uh, So what we use is we try to use the intersectionality of systems to make sure that even if something is inherently going to be a little bit unfair, it's at least challenging enough for both sides that the side that loses says, hey, that was a great gunfight. And the side that wins says, wow, they gave us hell. And another thing that you can do is switch up the dynamic of what players are doing. So for example, if you've got a game where one side is starting out on the defense and the other side is starting out on the attack and the attack just rolls the defense immediately and it just doesn't work out at all. Well, what's to say that the side that was previously on defense can't mount a counter assault? That's that's not only like good game design of, okay, cool. Now you've got like a natural way to make something happen where, okay, we're going to try to counter assault that position or like take a different position or a different route to our next position. But then you also have the element of flow where it never feels artificial because you don't mm-hmm. want to have too many hard resets or stops. Uh, I, I, my rule is generally you get one, like in, in the span of a long day's game, you might get one opportunity to like come down in an artificial way to make something happen. And even then you need to make sure that you've considered everything enough that it's going to flow in a way that players feel is natural and consequential to how they've been playing. So have you done that by like assigning random missions or sort of suggesting to the chain of command that a particular course of action would be timely? Like how would you, how would you actually uh, execute that in the context of running a game? Well, I mean, one of the ways you can do it, uh, you know, for our games especially is, hey, this side's getting like totally dunked on no matter what they do. Well, we control the ammo supply. So you give those people a little bit more ammo and now all of a sudden the gunfights feel fair again. Mm-hmm. And that that alone usually solves the problem. Uh, we luckily have not wound up in that situation too much, but if we really have to, we'll just be like, hey, you know, this side's gonna, you know, be able to get an opportunity to get a little more ammo or this side's gonna get a different mission where they weren't good at this thing and they wound up getting steamrolled. So now we're gonna give them a different mission that puts them in a different scenario 
And it's all about just keeping it uh, dynamic so that no one's just getting their soul crushed over and over and over again. So then it's like, okay, well, even if you lose, it was still cool because you got to do a lot of different stuff. Yeah, totally. And as the game organizer, like especially like one of the main organizers, there's a lot of different moving parts. Like how do you keep tabs on that aspect of like, okay, well, yeah, are people like absolutely getting dunked on, but also how people are feeling like player morale is a real thing. Do you rely on the, like the chain of command to let you know whether players feeling like this is not going well for them or how does that work? That's a, that's a multifaceted thing. Uh, So we've got our chain of command, obviously that we, for us, our chain of command is all event staff. Uh, And that's something I think a lot more, games should experiment with. I think for a lot of, this is going to sound like a semi-hot take, I think a lot of game designers will put people in positions when running games where those people then get competitive and say, I want to win and crush the opposition and blah, 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 blah. But ultimately, that's not the job of your staff. That's the job of your players. Yeah, The job of your staff is to make sure that everyone who paid money to go play Airsoft is having a fun day of Airsoft. So then you've got it where now your your event staff are going to help players coordinate the competitive aspect of things, but it's not their main focus. Their main focus is how are our players feeling about what's going on and how can we collaborate with them to make sure that they're having fun the entire time they're doing it. And, And that's the best way to maintain player morale is just to have have them feel engaged with every aspect of the game so that they don't feel salty that they're just getting told what to do and getting curb stomped or railroaded. Now it's like, okay, well we're actively involved and doing all this stuff. And our consequence, our consequences that we're feeling in the gameplay are the result of our actions that we're putting forward. Yeah. And I'd say that that morale piece will be doubly important when it's 10 degrees Fahrenheit and your players toes feel like they're going to fall off or whatever. Yep. And, yeah. and that's also about like just maintaining a positive attitude and, and interacting with your players because, you know, I, I walk around the field and, and talk to people and like get a feel for what's going on and how people are feeling and, and, and just having that open line of communication because players are I've seen this numerous times at not just games that I've been at, but like games that friends of mine have run. Uh, but sometimes you'll have a player who's having a really bad time with something and just having that conversation with someone in a position of like game master authority where you can approach their concerns, discuss their concerns, you know, react to what they're saying or, you know, explain to them why their perspective is incomplete. That allows you to control player morale a little more because ultimately a lot of players just want to know what the hell's going on. I was, I was at a, a game where, you know, I'm just walking to the bathroom. I'm not working this game. This is just a game I'm attending. And someone comes up to me and just goes, hey, like, we've got, you know, this whole platoon that's left. We've got, like, nobody left in my squad. I don't know what's going on. Like, what do you know? Like, what what's going on? And I just sat there and talked to this guy for, like, five minutes and told him, like, hey, here's what we did. Here's what's going on. Here, Here's the whole picture. Yeah, we lost that platoon, but we still have four other platoons. You know, things were okay. Mm-hmm. And that guy just left that conversation. Again, I'm not, I'm not even staff. But I was just in the position to be able to tell that guy, like, it's not as bad as you think. Calm down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's so funny, man. Like, it's – I was talking to a few people over the podcast over the last year. And, like, uh, there's uh, one of our, our, our buddies, Sam, out in Colorado. He was saying, like, 
man, I was really leaving the game frustrated. And I was just, I was at a point where I'm just like, I don't know what's going on and stuff. And like, really he would, he left the game like super salty. And then once he got context about what had happened, looking back on it, he's like, Oh, that's not so bad. Yeah. Right. And I, you know, I think there's, there's a piece here that, that you're talking about where a lot of that responsibility falls you know, on the event staff, number one, but if you, if your event staff aren't also your chain of command, like they are in your case, then it falls on your chain of command to pass that information down. And if that's not yep. happening, then that's where your players are, are, are losing the, the clearer picture. Cause it, it's interesting. I think that on the one hand you have players who are, um, especially at a mill sim, right? Yeah. If you are simulating the military and you are a rank and file soldier or whatever, command doesn't owe you any explanation whatsoever, right? Presumably. Um, yeah. But if you are a paying customer who is there to have a good time, then the expectation is sort of different, right? Well, and it's it's also interesting too, because, you know, then you talk to guys who've been in the military uh, and we have like several people who've been in the military on our payroll, you know, staffing our games. And it's funny how much more emphasis people who've like actually been there, done that with military leadership do put on maintaining accountability and morale of their guys. So, you know, I, I think there's some people who do think, you know, oh, well, I'm leadership at a milsim, so my word is law and I don't owe anyone an explanation, but that's not milsim. Milsim is that leadership is trying to lead people who they're living with and, you know, interacting with day in, day out that they've trained together with. So they're maintaining accountability and holding each other to standards. That's Milsim. Yeah, legit. And, and that goes, you know, that goes so, so far at helping people feel good about, about what they're doing. Like, it's yep. just, yeah. And, and we've talked about this on, on, on the podcast before. And I've talked about this to a lot of different airsofters. Everybody hates the guy who goes to the field and just starts bossing people around. Right? Oh, Yeah. Like that doesn't do anything, man. Just because you're shouting stuff at me, I'm not gonna do anything about it. I'm, I mean, <laughs> I may, but it's gonna be because I wanted to, not because you were yelling at me, right? Well, and you and, always, yeah. And that's all about like leadership in general with airsoft. Like, you know, I, I'll tell you right now. Sometimes I am the guy who are I'm on the field and like we're stuck or gridlocked in a situation, and I'll be the guy who's like hey, can we get some guys over there? Because if we, you know, take this route, I think we'll have a better approach. And, and I, I always maintain that. You can yell orders at people if you do it with a smile on your face. Because it's have- clear that you're trying to do what you're trying to do, not because you think you're the shit who knows. Sorry, I, I don't know if we're swearing on here. All, All right. Uh, but not because you think you're the man who knows everything and is in charge and you know, you're know you gung-ho tactical wizard boy, but because you have an idea and you're excited about it and a bad idea that everyone's excited about and does is better than no idea. And everyone just meat grinds. <laughs> yeah. Or being the guy who's shouting barking orders from the back and not up front. Mm-hmm. Um, so just that uh, you, you said something right. That tactical wizard. Can you expand on that a little? <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Cause I heard, I heard like, um, apparently you need to hire this guy. This is what I've been. Doing. Oh God. Uh, so the tactical wizard is, a character that I haven't done in quite some time, but I, I would ma- I would make videos. This is like total Gun Gamers channel lore, not not anything related <laughs> to game design. Uh, but I, I have a character that I break out every now and then. Uh, he needs to come back, but I, I would just satirize uh, just elements of airsoft that I thought kind of deserved it. And, and my rule with the Tactical Wizard was always that like 
the character is making jokes about other people, but the character in the way he does it is still the butt of the joke because he's just such a lack of self-awareness, just douche. Yeah. Yeah, and in that way, it's not punching down, right? You're, uh, you're, yeah, you're satirizing. So yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, I, like I, I, tr- I try to make fun of stuff that we're all gonna laugh about. Like if you, if you watch one of the videos, like one is like how to chair soft, and it's literally me wearing like my girlfriend at the time's robe with my foot <laughs> casted because I just busted my ankle, and uh, <laughs> and I'm just, I'm just t- talking about like the things we all do on the internet and just go on and talk nonsense and be douchebags. <laughs> yeah, man. So listen, I wanted to, sh- uh, to, to change gears just a little bit mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to like gameplay design and stuff. Yeah. One of the aspects that's really important uh, for Airsoft, we talked about it a little bit, is like props and, and this kind of stuff. But especially if you're starting out, like you likely will not have a budget or you'll have a very limited budget yeah. uh, on making those props. And sometimes as a result of that, you have sort of have to ask your players to suspend disbelief, right? I've run mm-hmm. games where I had a black briefcase and the black briefcase had two strips of duct tape on it. And I was like, guys, this is an EMP device. And everyone goes, okay, right? Like that's, yeah. so that suspension of disbelief is, is critical. From your perspective and in your history of organizing games, what was your favorite sort of mechanic or prop that you created that you used, but that required people to sort of use their imagination a bit? Oh man, ah, oh, that the, there's a lot. Uh, I would say one of my favorite was, and this is like so silly. It's not Milsim at all. It's it, it's like a Halloween game that we ran years back, and the like theme of the Halloween game was that one team was a cult trying to complete a ritual, and oh, this sure. ritual would summon their god and bring about the end times and a thousand years of darkness and all that death metal stuff I love. Uh, but <laughs> but, I, but I actually had it where I'm like, yeah, well, you have to go here and go to this podium and read this ritual, and the ritual was literally just like three pages of Rings of Saturn lyrics. Okay. <laughs> and okay. if they... And if they got one word wrong, an admin would just shoot them. <laughs> awesome. So the the idea behind the ritual is like, yeah, you know, you have to say this ritual perfectly or else the god gets angry and kills you. And it's like objectively a very silly thing. And players like really did have to suspend their disbelief. And, and it was ridiculous. But because it was fun, people were like, yeah, that's hilarious. I'll do that. <laughs> yeah, legit, man. That's that's so funny. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, it's those kinds of things, I think, those small, uh, like, weird or unique interactions that people, A, will remember. Yep. They'll stick in their memories. And they're going to keep coming back. They're like, oh, man, these guys ran an event and they did this crazy thing at Halloween. And they had me read death metal lyrics or whatever. And, <laughs> yeah. it's like, and I got shot by an admin. I don't even know why. Like, but it's like, <laughs> it was awesome. And so, you know, they, they keep coming back. That's such a funny story, man. Yeah, well, and that's the thing is ultimately, like, if you really look at it on it on its surface, Airsoft is an absurd game. We, yeah. we pretend to kill each other in ways that would be horrific if it was the real world. So sometimes what it does come down to is almost reminding people that, like, yeah, we're, we're doing this crazy, weird, silly, LARPy thing. So the potential of what we can do if we'll use our imagination is unlimited. 
and and that's Absolutely. where and that's where you just have to get players involved in that and and understanding like that part of the ethos and that really i think trains players to also appreciate those extra steps to dress up the game because now they're like well i, I get it. it it's a fun silly thing but it's fun yeah and i think you know to to, to boost that i players need to take themselves a, a little less seriously in some cases in order to be able to do that right yeah if you're not willing to have that sort of like hey hang on is this is this going to be silly but is it going to be fun conversation then you're going to end up in a situation where you're just limiting yourself from like yeah absolutely a game like milsim west is going to be like a serious milsim and you want to take it of seriously, course. legit a hundred percent but there's also this whole untapped you know market of airsoft that could be like star wars uh, events like we yep. talked about in the past or you know more larp role play central uh i think um one of our uh, one of your local guys was talking to about like a a tarkov game that was played again like all these kinds of stuff that really change the dynamic if you're willing to step out of the seriousness of just replicating something that is in the military or whatever and you know it really engage in the fact that it's a game it's supposed to be fun right yeah, and I think that that's something that we're going to see more of as uh, as Airsoft continues to mature. Because I think in terms of, you know, one of my pet peeves is that everyone who organizes a game at, like, any level of organization wants to call it a milsim. And to me, that just shows, like, a lack of imagination. I'm, I'm like, dude, we have this incredible gift of these realistic looking guns that we can use in whatever setting and they'll still work and we can build whatever fantasy, like why haven't we done a bank robbery game or, uh, or, you know, more post-apocalyptic stuff and, and Western theme stuff. Like you see a Balahack now, like I, I think the list of genres that airsoft can expand into is nearly infinite. As long mm-hmm. as we can, you know, use our imagination in that way and embrace that desire for unconventional play. Yeah, totally. It's such a good point, man. Like every and we've even joked, well not joked, but we we call a lot of our games like Milsim adjacent because it's the only way that we can explain to certain players like yeah, it's uh, you know, it's an objective based yeah. game uh, etc. Right. But you're totally right. Like, why would you limit yourself that way? And I mean, yeah, you can do, obviously it's got to involve guns in some way. Otherwise yeah. it's going to be, otherwise it's strange. not airsoft. Anymore. Right. <laughs> but like, but like, I, I, you know, it's, it's interesting. Some of the games that we have played sort of in my history, uh, in the woods that were organized as sort of like random objective based games, we spent the entire day and we did not shoot an entire, a single person. Yeah. Right. But because of the environment that you've created, there's so much tension and you're going out on patrols and you don't know if you're going to be engaged. So you're being careful and you're doing all this stuff and you hear something crack and you're like, oh, my God, you know, is, is you know, is that somebody like all that stuff? Right. And there's so much potential in there. And your point is so salient. Right. Well, well I think that ties into actually a question that uh, I think is Chas Gordon. Uh, I, I think that's how you pronounce that. But he asked a question in the in the chat, like my favorite non AMS line clause MSW. So like my favorite non Milsim. And the answer is survive Omega desolation, like the first desolation that survive Omega did. If, if we have like a, a list of event promoters that really need to come back, Survive Omega is at the top. Uh, <laughs> but the first desolation was just 40 dudes. Like, well, not not dudes. I mean, there were, there were, there were a few girls. Uh, so 40 people, 40 players. And it was on skirmish paintball with like 400 acres of playable property. So we barely saw each other. And when we did, it was tense. Because that game, you started with like 20 BBs. 
And so it's like a post-apocalyptic kind of kind of deal. Yeah, and it was intense with a lot of like heavy character interaction, role play, looting. Uh, there was I was actually role playing as the antagonist faction, so I had you know as much ammo as the rule set allowed for, and I would just antagonize and like mess with all the players. But then that gave them you know that extra level of tension where then they saw us and what's their disposition? You know what can we do and and my favorite moments at that game were the moments where players like just found really creative ways to kill me. It was great. <laughs> That's yeah, man. It's always good. And we talked about that a little, like sometimes players will surprise you, right? Doing yeah. like, like as another player, but also even as a game organizer, like you're going to start getting into mechanics and things that you're, you're going to want to do from, from your perspective as a game organizer. Now, what's the thing that a player has done that you were just like, what what is going on here? Like, why did you think this was a good idea or it was just completely out of left field for you? Uh, you know, the the example that sticks out in my mind the most is actually probably one of the earliest examples I remember of that. It was actually at Operation Minutemen, the, the first game I ran at Hunter's Creek. And that moment always sticks out to me because it was such a good lesson learned where we had set up that there were, you know, bomb props in the field and those bomb props could get delivered to different objectives to bring them out of play to do for, do different things. And theoretically, according to the timetable and everything that should have been happening and like what command thought was important, like one place should have been the place getting bombed and another place was like technically not even really supposed to be in play at this point. But those players looked at like what bombing those different areas did and thought about like, hey, if we knock this out, then that gives us this advantageous position. So the right. players determine for themselves, hey, this other objective is more important to us. And the players like told their chain of command that, and the chain of command was like, okay, cool, let's go for it. <laughs> and and you have to embrace because you know there the term for that in game design theory is emergent gameplay. It's where systems interact with each other in ways that you weren't thinking about and then emerge into a new form of gameplay because of the interaction that those systems enable. And you almost have to plan for that emergent gameplay and really reward and embrace that from your players. Yeah, it's I think in um, in improv they call it yes and, yep. right? It's like you want to do something? Oh yeah, sure, absolutely. And on top of that, whatever. And we've seen that as well in some of the smaller games. And I think you're you're talking about something that's really important that when you're designing a game, like it's not that you need to plan for what is going to happen, but yep. plan for the fact that it may happen and you don't know what it's going to look like and what is your reaction going to be if and when it happens. Obviously, if it's unsafe or whatever, like that's different. Yeah, of course, of course. But like we're, what we're talking about is like when things are evolving and changing in a way that you're like, oh, okay, well, this is this is fine. Yeah. Um, but it's also not what we expected, but okay. Right. Yeah. Um, you have to, you have to set aside your ego. Like I think a lot of game masters and, and you know, this is anyone who's played Dungeons and Dragons probably relate to this. There's a lot of game masters who have a very clear vision of what they want to happen and the type of play they think they're facilitating. But if players want a different kind of experience and it can be done in a way that makes sense and works within the world and everything, just let it happen. Like your point, your job as a game master is to let everyone have fun. So if everyone's having fun, you're doing your job, whether you meant yeah. to or not. <laughs> yeah. One of the, one of the games that we organized many years ago, one that we're repeating this year, 
um, in a, in a modified, but we had this, this setup where we had a village and all the villagers there in the village were supposed to speak a different language. And we wanted to give the players this experience of imagine being a soldier deployed somewhere in a different mm -hmm. country where you don't speak the language. How do, how do you even interact with players? Right? So we told them like, you're going to get to this village and you need to be friendly with them and try and gain their trust or whatever. And so they get there and what do they see? But it's me and I'm shouting at them in French because French is my first language. Um, and I'm shouting at them to like put down their guns. I've got my rifle leveled at them. They're yeah. told not to engage me. And they're just like, I don't know what's going on, but this guy's shouting at me in French. And that was my plan. My plan was like, they're going to see this. They're going to deer in headlights and it's going to be awesome. But their reaction was, Hey, hang on. Does anyone on the team speak French? Like yeah. one of the other players randomly and they found one, they found one kid who was like in French immersion and they brought him down and he started talking to me and I'm like, well, that's not what I expected, but this is cool as hell. So yeah, yeah let's go. Right. Yeah. Let that stuff roll. Like totally. It, it, it rewards player ingenuity and you never want players to feel like they don't have agency and you're just trying to railroad them through an experience. Uh, the way I always think about it is you're, you're not designing a movie. You're designing Westworld. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> That's a really good way of thinking about it, man. That's a really good way of thinking about it. Yeah. Um, so the last thing I sort of just wanted to touch on sort of before we wrap up is that from an organization standpoint, you know, we've talked about emergent gameplay when stuff is not going to plan, but it's going right. Yeah. Um, but stuff is also not going to go the way you want it. So stuff is going to go awry. Yeah. Uh, some of that stuff is going to potentially be important. And some of it is just going to be a nothing burger. And you don't really know, you know, until it occurs. Some of the times the players will know that something is going sort of off the rails. But most of the time, I would say they don't. So from your perspective, what was something that was going wrong during a game that you guys were really, really concerned about? And did it turn out to be anything to be worried about? Uh, so I would actually say my most recent example of this was at uh, at Overture, our, our game that we ran uh, this last summer. And what wound up happening is that we ended up kind of totally derailing uh, where we thought things were going to happen. Uh, and that wound up being an issue because we only had access to certain parts of the property at certain times, which going forward, we're not renting facilities where that's a consideration where we're just mm -hmm. going to have all the facility in play from the get go. Uh, so that's one thing is sometimes you just learn a lesson and realize that you're going to just not do things the same way again. Um, but that also comes down to the way that you run things of, you know, like we had, uh, we had, kind of a standstill uh, at Overture for a bit. And that wasn't what we wanted to happen. I really didn't want there to be any point where there was like kind of a break. I wanted, you know, rest rotations, but players, you know, again, everybody just wanted to go ham. So our, <laughs> our intention had been that, you know, players would get like moments of respite between engagements, but then everybody just went ham for six or seven hours in a row. And then everybody wanted a break at the same time. Yeah. And ultimately what that came down to is coming back to, you know, just swallow your pride and think about what your solutions are. So we wound up having a little powwow with the uh, with the chain command and said, hey, how are you guys feeling? Like, what do they need right now? What can we do? How can we keep this flowing? And then we just made the determination at that point that we're like, okay, so we're just going to ditch a whole portion of the op plan 
uh, let people get like their little little bit of a break that they want right now. We'll we'll fix it next time so that we're not going to have something like this. Players didn't seem to mind generally, so that's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're, we're like, hey, we're just going to roll right into this next thing. We're going to send it. We're going to let it happen. And that's where you have to be willing to ditch what you were planning to do and just improvise. Yeah. And keep and a positive like said, attitude about it too. Yeah. And, and that's, that's interesting what you're saying too. Like, do you think most players even noticed that that change had been made? Like you're cutting something out that they might not have seen. They might not even know was even in your plan to begin with. Right. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is because we have that little bit of like a showmanship advantage of, you know, we know roughly what we were planning on putting players through next in terms of like, Hey, here's where the gunfight's going to be. Here's what it's going to be over. Uh, but that didn't work out. So now we're not going to like do this dumb thing to try to set it up artificially when everybody's like halfway through making dinner. So instead we're just going to let these guys get their rest rotation, let the guys who want to go hard, like meet in the middle and, you know, have some uh, squad and, you know, sub platoon level gunfights and everyone, everyone seemed pretty happy. And then we rolled into the night rotation and the night rotation just wound up being like, not even half of what we thought it was going to be because people were so dog tired. So nobody, nobody left thinking that they didn't play enough airsoft. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's what they're there for, right? So yeah. that's, you know, you're getting your money's worth any way you slice it. But people awesome. were dog tired, man. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it, it's hard enough going for, you know, straight for a couple hours. Like most people don't, don't live that level of exhaustion on the daily. Right. And it's not something you, you're conditioned for. Right. So six hours is, you know, you think about people, even like myself, like I don't, I work a desk job. Yeah. Right. So like if I have to be on my feet for 12 hours, like that's hard enough as it is. Um, so yeah, I can, I can only imagine how tired those guys were. Um, but yeah. yeah. So listen, Eric, this has been an awesome conversation. I'm so oh, yeah. glad that you were able to join us. Um, well, we'll, have to, that- we'll have to have you on our podcast once we uh, actually get back to doing it. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. I'd love to, I'd love to come on. I think, you know, I hope that some of our listeners uh, today, whether they were some of ours or some of your listeners, um, take something away from that. And I think the the most important thing is, you know, you can do this too, yep. right? The stuff that you've learned, the stuff that, that I've learned and the stuff that I'm going to learn from you through this conversation, um, <laughs> it's not like some sort of secret sauce, right? It, it exists and it, it's all part of experience that people can gain, right? Yep. And there's multiple approaches to it too. You know, just, just because we're saying our way that that's relevant to the games we design and the type of games we run, you know, maybe you have an entirely different idea of a game that you want to run. You know, you out there listening, I, I don't know you, but like you, maybe I know you, but, uh, but you know, you listening right now, if you have an idea that you think is cool, test it out at a scale that you're not going to like have to put yourself out, you know, go to a field owner, propose your game idea, do something cool and see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. And even test small mechanics. You've got an open game. You want to try a mechanic during an open game. It's something mm-hmm. you can you can do as well. I know we've done that. But uh, yeah, it's really great advice, Eric. And again, I can't thank you enough for joining. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being here with us. Um, that's all we've got for you this week. And we will talk to you next week. Take care, everyone. Peace.